1: Tonight on The Readout. I would not have
2: done what Mike Pence did. I don't think that was the right approach. There was unconstitutional unconstitu- overreach in states like Pennsylvania. And uh, I think it's very important that we continue to stand up for the Constitution and have legal and secure elections, which we did not have in 2020.
1: Elise Stefanik knows that going full election denier will boost her chances of winning The Apprentice Autocracy Season 1 with the dubious prize of becoming Trump's running mate hang Mike Pence notwithstanding. Her absurd comments capped a week of Republican embarrassments, which included knifing the border bill they demanded and a failed impeachment attempt. Also tonight, President Biden calls Israel's military response to Hamas over the top, as Prime Minister Netanyahu signals that a ground invasion of Rafah could be imminent. Plus, the right-wing Supreme Court has been a big supporter of states' rights in cases involving reproductive rights and control over women's bodies, but not so much when it came time to decide whether states can kick a proven insurrectionist with the last name of Trump off of the ballot. But we begin tonight with special counsel Robert Hur's report about President Biden's mishandling of classified documents. Having had a day to digest the nearly 400 page report, I can comfortably say that this is one of the most nonsensical, absurd and outrageous documents I have seen since then FBI Director James Comey's hit job on Hillary Clinton and her email server 11 days before Election Day in 2016. In both cases, the conclusion of the prosecutors was the same. No charges were deemed warranted and no crimes committed. But that didn't stop either Comey or her from ladling on superfluous political and personal attacks on what was supposed to be a simple fact-based report answering just one question. Is the Justice Department going to indict? That's it. That's all the public wanted or needed to know. Instead, her begins what can only be described... As a political diatribe designed for Fox News like a script for the five on the very first page, appearing to call out Biden as an egotist by writing, quote, Mr. Biden has long seen himself as a historic figure. Well, yeah, man, he probably does see himself as an historic figure. Joe Biden is a president of the United States. There have only been 46 people in all of America's 248 year history who have served in that role. And not for nothing, he was the vice president to the first black president in U.S. history. So that kind of makes him an historic figure, don't you think, Mr. Her? And then on page six, on page six, Herr claims that a reason that he wouldn't bring charges against the president for whom he found no crime was that Biden was an elderly man with a poor memory. Going as far as to say his memory was so poor that Biden couldn't even remember when his son Bo died despite the untimely death of Bo Biden from cancer being a thing Joe Biden talks about literally all the time. Last night, Biden did not hold back in his response.
3: I was very honored as a man, Victor Orban. Did ever, anyone ever hear of him? He's the leader of, right? He's the leader of Turkey. By the way, they never report the crowd on January 6th. You know, Nikki Haley, Nikki Haley, Nikki Haley, Nikki Haley is in charge of security. We offered her 10,000 people soldiers, National Guard, whatever they want. They turned it down. They don't want to talk about that. Just think of it.
1: You saw that guy? Biden did respond, and we're going to play that in a moment. But, you know, we're just going to go with what we got on the screen. Because it was news to me, to be honest with you, as I read this report, that being old and having a poor memory was an excuse for not being prosecuted. And you just heard that guy. Somebody should update all the defense lawyers out there, including the ones working for him. Now I think we're going to play Biden. Okay, that's okay. Trump, who cannot tell the difference between Nancy Pelosi and Nikki Haley, and who often thinks that he ran for president against Barack Obama and who statistically is just as old as Joe Biden, has been indicted on 91 criminal counts. Nobody said that he should be off the hook because of his age or his mental infirmity. And the same could be said for Rudy Giuliani, who's being prosecuted in Georgia. How do you explain both of them being prosecuted? Both men are elderly and clearly their memories are shot. It's simple. Because whether to prosecute someone or not is not about age or, 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 or infirmity or, or whether they can remember things or not. It's about facts and evidence. Why did it take so many pages just to say you're not going to prosecute Joe Biden? And why all the personal attacks? Let's just remember, Mike Pence was investigated recently for the exact same reason, and it led to the exact same result. No prosecution. But I don't remember any personal or political vitriol from prosecutors aimed at Mike Pence as they cleared him. And while special counsel Her felt it necessary to include that very partisan-sounding fodder, it was Attorney General Merrick Garland's final decision to allow the Her report to be released entirely unedited. NBC News has learned that Garland felt that he was not in a position to withhold or edit any information for fear of being compared with Trump's Attorney General Bill Barr, and how he handled the Mueller Report by quoting selectively from it and dishonestly from it before it was available for the public to read for themselves. But Barr did that to cover up the fact that Trump did indeed do what he was being investigated for. I mean, Russia did try to help him become president. In Biden's case, editing the memo wouldn't have reversed the conclusion. It would have preserved the dignity of the Department of Justice by not allowing it to look like a department at Fox. In fact, it appears that in trying to look nonpartisan, Garland overcorrected, according to former Obama Attorney General Eric Holder who says the report contains way too many gratuitous remarks and is flatly inconsistent with longstanding DOJ traditions. Had this report been subject to a normal DOJ review, these remarks would undoubtedly have been excised. Her, a longtime Republican who clerked for Supreme Court Justice Rehnquist and other right-wing judges, left conservatives with something that they could use when the facts didn't play out in their favor. In other words, Her did exactly what Bill Barr did. And Merrick Garland let him. And then there's the contrast in Biden's case. He didn't attempt to withhold classified documents from their rightful owner, namely the federal government. With Trump, it's the opposite. And it's not just that Trump took classified documents, which he did, or that he refused to turn them over to the government, which he wouldn't. He also directed his staff to hide those documents and then to destroy the evidence of those acts. Add to that, he lied to his own lawyers about the documents, putting them in legal jeopardy for then lying to the government. And while Trump was rightfully indicted for his actions, there's still a question of whether he may be able to wriggle out of any accountability, given that the Trump-appointed judge assigned to the case, Aileen Cannon, has been slow-walking bringing the case to trial. Yesterday, Judge Cannon was called out by special counsel Jack Smith for making a, quote, clear error in the case that could reveal the identities of potential witnesses and expose them to threats from Trump supporters. Joining me now is David Pluff former Obama campaign manager and White House senior advisor, Mary McCord, former acting assistant attorney general for national security and co-host of the Prosecuting Donald Trump podcast, And Jill Weinbanks, former assistant Watergate special prosecutor and an MSNBC legal analyst. And Jill, I'm going to go right to you because you have the experience of writing a report about potential criminal actions by an American president. How did it strike you
4: when you read the her report? Which did it strike you as odd? It struck me as a violation of everything the Department of Justice stands for. It was against every policy uh, attorney general Uh, called it traditions, but I would say it's much more than traditions. The way that uh, her went out of his way to put in a knife and twist it was worse than Comey Redux. It was really terrible. All of the things that you quoted so very eloquently, I would say you have a new job as a prosecutor presenting the evidence (laughs) to a jury from how you did that. It was just really unnecessary, obscene, And to say he's a historic figure, he's the president of the United States when you're talking to him. Of course, he's a historic person. (laughs) And all that that report should have said is we did not find evidence beyond a reasonable doubt, and so there will be no indictment. And the other thing that I thought was really terrible was the explanation that, well, We need to talk about his poor memory because he wouldn't come across to a jury as someone that should be punished for that. (laughs) He's not a witness. He's the defendant. All you need is evidence that will come in through prosecution witnesses. And there is no excuse for commenting on what you think his mental capacity is, except if you're going for a job in Trump administration number two. And so it was wrong on every level.
1: And, you know, Mary McCord, that that's how it struck me, too. Look, I'm not a lawyer, but now, by now I have read a lot of indictments because Donald Trump just keeps on getting indicted because he keeps criming, right? I read nothing in the Jack Smith indictments of Donald Trump, and there have been four of them, that commented on Donald Trump's appearance, the way he speaks, the way he talks, the things he says, right? There's a part in this document where it says Joe Biden took contemporaneous notes Of his meetings with President Obama. And then it says some of those notes contain classified information. Then it says, well, he shared his notes with his ghostwriter. And then it says, you know, we don't have any evidence that he shared the classified parts with his ghostwriter and none of the classified material appeared in the book. So I'm like, well, why did you tell me thing one if thing three is going to be none of that matters? It literally felt gratuitous. But I have to say, I couldn't get past page one because starting off by saying this guy thinks he's historic. I was like, well, yeah, (laughs) he's the president. Your thoughts. So um,
5: I think that there are parts of this and I have not read the full 300 plus nearly 400 page document. I've read the the. The executive summary and selected parts. And part of this read to me like what we would normally see in, or not normally, but what would be included in a prosecution memo that is purely an internal Department of Justice document that is created when a prosecutor has finished an investigation and it's either recommending, yes, we're going to go seek an indictment, or we're going to decline to seek an indictment. And in that memo, you would set out the evidence that could be used to support the elements of the crime, but then you would set out all of the evidence that doesn't support the elements of crime, all of the vulnerabilities and weaknesses in the case, and you might even point out things like the defendant could appear sympathetic, which would also mean I'm going to have a more difficult time proving my case at trial. But the thing about a prosecution memo it's not a public document it's purely to memorialize sort of the investigation decision making within the Department of Justice and Robert her knew because he was operating under the special counsel regulations which provide for there to be a report that the Attorney General then will then decide whether will be made public and Garland had have you know I think has long said I'm going to make this report public. Robert Hearn knew had every reason to believe that this would be made public, and still included a level of detail well beyond anything even that you would see, I think, in a process in a prosecution memo. And certainly, knowing it would be made public, knowing we are just you know months out, we are in the midst of primaries, months away from a general election, these kind of information is the kind of information that will be directly used uh, in campaigning. Will be directly used um, against Joe Biden in this election. Even though the bottom line is no criminal culpability.
1: Exactly. And it was 400-some-odd pages. No wonder you, I mean, you as brilliant as you are, aren't going to read the whole thing. And they know, David Plouffe, 99% of the media aren't going to either. I, too, read the executive summary and have been counting on other lawyers who've read further into it, who've gotten to the 200s and 300s. This is 400-some-odd pages to answer one question. Are we indicting him? And the answer is no. It. it let me go back to James Comey. Let's remember that. He described Bill, uh, Hillary Clinton as being extremely careless in using her private email server. Described putting together email servers like removing the frame from a huge finished jigsaw puzzle and dumping the pieces on the floor, stuff he didn't have to say. He, the only thing that Heard didn't do that Comey did was do it 11 days before the election. I just want to get your comment on the fact that it does appear that this person was trying to give fodder to Donald Trump's, poli- I mean, to Joe Biden's political enemies in a report that was clearing him.
6: Well, Joy, I think that clearly is the case, and I agree with everything you said and the guests have said, this is kind of historically egregious. Uh, But it's a political problem. There's no question about that because there are existing voter concerns about Joe Biden's age. Um, and I think there's going to be two ways for him to handle that. One is to make sure, uh, you know, this is a contrast because Donald Trump is giving up every day that this guy's in severe mental decline in addition to the damage he do to the country. As Joe Biden often says, don't compare me to the almighty, compare me to the alternative. And the other thing, I think last night was a good start. He's just got to be out there a lot more. You know, think in basketball, if you make one shot and miss it, it gets uh, magnified. <laughs> you know, if you go, you know, seven for nine, <laughs> uh, you know... <laughs> (laughs) It's a good game. And so I think that's the best way. The way I think about it is the presidency, this is simple, but there's kind of two major aspects. There's the stuff behind the scenes, the calls with world leaders, the discussions with members of Congress, the meetings in the Situation Room of the Oval Office. And I think by all, you know, uh, evidence, Joe Biden has thrived at that. He's been just a superior president. Then there's the public performative aspects where I think you'd be the first one to say, yeah, he's he's, he's not as he might have been 30 years ago. None of us are. Uh, And so, but I think if he's out there mixing it up, doing a lot of interviews, uh, you know, out there with the people, he's done a lot more of that. I think that will go a long way. But but at the end of the day, this is a choice the American people have to make. Uh, yeah. So the, the behavior here was egregious. That doesn't mitigate the fact uh, that it's now upped you know a degree of difficulty <laughs> for Biden. It already existed.
1: But I mean, you know, one thing that he has been doing for thirty years is like gaffing. We, we actually made a mess exactly. of it because it's not like he's not the gaff guy. Like. When, when President Obama chose him as a running mate, they're like, you mean the gaff guy? Oh, here he is. Let's play it.
7: A man I'm proud to call my friend, a man who will be the next president of the United States, Barack America. <laughs> His mom uh, lived in, uh, in Long Island for 10 years or so. Uh, God rest her soul. And uh, um, although she's, wait, your mom's still, your mom's still alive Is your dad passed. <laughs> God bless her soul. John's last-minute economic plan does nothing to tackle the number one job facing the middle class. And it happens to be, as Barack says, a three-letter word, jobs. J-O-B-S, (laughs) jobs.
1: I mean, this is like his brand. And it's kind of the reason people kind of dig him, right? Like he was, he's, 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 he's Bidening all the time. In 2018, Biden said, I am a gaff machine. But my God, what a wonderful thing compared to be a a guy who can't tell the truth. And at least he knows who Nikki Haley is versus Nancy Pelosi.
6: Well, Joey, first of all, those are great memories. That's right. I mean, I grew up in Delaware, so I've, I've been with this for decades, not, not just when we chose him as VP. Uh, I, I think people know this about Joe Biden and, and like many people, but he not just as he got older, you know, sometimes will mangle things. But what he doesn't mangle is his values and his principles uh, and the job that he's done for the American people. So this was always going to have to be a searing contrast against Donald Trump for Joe Biden to win. That's even more the case today than it was yesterday. And I have every confidence that that's a case he can prosecute. Uh, the truth is, Joe Biden likes people, people like him. And I think the more he's out there mixing it up and raising the stakes of this election, uh, the better he'll be. And I expect to see a lot more of that in the days, weeks and months to come.
1: He should do that Super Bowl interview, too. He should really do the Super Bowl interview. Yeah. He should not turn that down. Joe Weinbanks, um, let me ask you, what should happen in nor- normally? I mean, because this feels something this feels like misconduct almost by her. Because, I mean, it, it, there's nothing in what he wrote that advances the legal argument one way or another. It just seems gratuitous. Is there any consequence for doing that?
4: Unfortunately, the damage is already done. So whatever punishment would be imposed on him won't undo the damage. And I really don't think there is. I also I'm going to say something that won't make me popular, but I think that Merrick Garland deserves some of the blame for this. So I do but, think ma-
1: ma'am. Yes.
4: Go. Okay. So, Continue. the real me says a lot of the blame because he was mm-hmm. in charge and should have said that. Keep this to what's relevant. And you also Correct. have inconsistencies where it says he's he. There is um, he did willfully retain documents, and then at the end it says two hundred pages later. He- well, there isn't evidence of that, and so Correct. and there are innocent explanations that we cannot refute. So that needs to be up front, not 200 pages in, because as you've noticed, most people aren't reading it. I have I've read a significant part of it and I've skimmed all of it. And it's a quality to read the stuff. Absolutely. There's a reason that writers
1: have editors and there's a reason that we pay a whole attorney general to do the job. If you're too scared of politically to do your job, get a different job, Mr. Attorney General. David Plouffe, Mary McCord, Jill Winebanks. Thank you all very much. Who won the week is still ahead? But you know who absolutely positively did not win the week? Did you say congressional Republicans? Because, my friend, you don't know the half of it. That's next as the react continues. Today
2: and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood
7: Republican senators decided they don't want a bipartisan bill to fix the border. What they actually want is chaos. Because that's what Donald Trump says he wants. What the hell just happened?
0: I have a very clear message for anyone using the southern border for staged political events. Don't come to Arizona. Take your political theater to Texas.
7: You can do a partisan bill in the House. But in the Senate, we have to look at each other across the aisle and then figure out a way to be able to solve this.
1: Those were the three Senate negotiators, Democrat, Independent and Republican, on the foreign aid package with immigration changes that's now on life support in the Senate. This week, Republicans proved Democratic Senator Chris Murphy was 100 percent correct when he said that all they want is chaos because Donald Trump says so. The Senate is voting on a procedural motion to move forward with a pared down version of the package aid for Ukraine and Israel, but none of the border provisions. Senate Republicans officially blocked a version with border changes on Wednesday. But that was only half of the embarrassing nonsense from Republicans in Congress, where the words of the week were dysfunction and chaos. Over in the House, it was all about failure. Failure to legislate by declaring the immigration package dead on arrival and failure to do a thing that they've been talking about for a year impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. They'll give that little nugget another try next week with a vote scheduled for next Tuesday. Joining me now is Congresswoman Jasmine Crockett of Texas. Uh, Jasmine Crockett from the great state of Texas, uh, where apparently there is an abject crisis at your border. So why are Republicans (laughs) blocking the bill they've been demanding to meet this crisis?
8: Why are you acting as if you don't know? (laughs) You know that they are unserious people. And and what's what's really very frustrating, and I know that we're going to hear it, is that, well, y'all got money to send overseas and y'all can't take care of us right here at home. All of these cities that are in need of desperate dollars, like y'all aren't gonna take care of us. No, right now, the Republicans have said, we don't wanna do that. In fact, one of our Republican colleagues said something about, you know, the American people need to feel the pain They literally are trying to inflict pain on the very people that they say that they want to represent. That's what we're dealing with right now. We're dealing with distractions and and dysfunction. And it's really time that the American people say enough is enough. We need people that are going to look out for us domestically as well as internationally. And and you're
1: absolutely right, because, you know, people who are saying that that, that co- accusing Congress of sending money overseas instead of to the streets in, in the hood here. No, they're not sending money anywhere. Like, they're actually not sending money anywhere. They're just literally sitting around screaming, what is it Donald Trump wants us to do? And how quickly can we do it? Trump said jump. We need to jump. Uh, let, yeah. let's see what else they're doing. I, I want to, this is the, I guess the new thing is, uh, the apprentice. Elise DeFonic <laughs> seems to believe she has the best chance of being Donald Trump's new, uh, hang Mike Pence. Here she is auditioning.
2: I would not have done what Mike Pence did. I don't think that was the right approach. I specifically uh, stand by what I said on the House floor and uh, I stand by my statement, which was there was unconstitutional overreach. There was unconstitutional overreach in states like Pennsylvania. And uh, I think it's very important that we continue to stand up for the Constitution and have legal and secure elections, which we did not have in 2020. And the tens of millions of Americans agree with me.
1: Congresswoman, when asked and in a follow up, well, then fine. Can Vice President Harris ignore the election and say, declare Joe Biden to be the president? She didn't answer that. Can you uh, <laughs> explain what is going on with this woman? I mean, does she,
8: in your mind, oh, believe the things she says? I need y'all to understand what Republicans are telling y'all. They are playing in your face. It was unconstitutional what happened in Pennsylvania. Remember, it was Philly that they had a problem with. It's always, quote unquote, unconstitutional. It was unconstitutional in Georgia where he has charges pending against him. And what was his big complaint? Fulton County. It's always unconstitutional when it comes to the Republicans and Black folk deciding that they're actually going to show up to the polls and not vote for racist folk such as Elise Stefanik. That is what the definition of unconstitutional is to these people. And I need people to stop trying to act like there is some big, deep thought to be had. The Republicans <laughs> have made their agenda clear. They are constantly palling around with the likes of the Proud Boys. These people are saying forget affirmative action, forget DEI. They are constantly spitting in our face and telling us it's raining and people are thinking, well, you know what, maybe they are the ones for us. No, they're not. Period. They're not.
1: (laughs) At the end of the day, and I think you said it so brilliantly, unconstitutional and woke mean the same thing. And if you don't know what I mean, it means the congresswoman is wearing the color. It means they mean that. For those Amen. of you who are pretending that MAGA is your friend, that's what it means. Uh, final question here. Do you see just in your community in Texas, people waking up to the fact that 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 is the case that, you know, because you do see a lot of people saying maybe Trump is the answer, which makes no sense to me at all. But are you st- are people starting to realize that, oh, this is a war against our communities?
8: I'm gonna be honest and tell you that I live in a bubble, a nice blue bubble. I really do. My district is as blue as they come. Um, and my district is, is good with me and how I govern. So I don't really run into that. I do run into a lack of enthusiasm overall for politics. I do hear things like we need you know, more politicians that are willing to hit back and hit back hard because the Democrats are right. So I run into a lack of enthusiasm, but I've not run into too many people that have completely given up and said, we're going the other way. But again, I am their congresswoman I am going to make sure that they know that I am bringing home money and where did this money come from it came from the Biden Harris administration who cares about environmental injustice and the fact that they are dumping in our black communities it is this administration so I'm going to bring y'all these millions of dollars to start doing cleanup on aisle nine like I make sure that I educate my districts on where the dollars are coming from and I make sure that I pull them down every chance I get
1: Not every person is lucky to have a congresswoman like Congresswoman Jasmine Crockett. So your constituents are very lucky. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Really appreciate you. you. Of course. And over the top, that is what that is how President Joe Biden describes Israel's assault on Gaza as Israel prepares for a fresh assault on Rafah, which is already packed with refugees.
0: We'll be right back. Hey, parents, Greenlight is here to take one big thing off your to do list, teaching your kids about money. With a Greenlight debit card and money app of their own, kids and teens learn to earn, save, and invest. You can send money instantly, set flexible controls, and get real-time notifications of your kids' money activity. Set up chores and put allowance on autopilot to reward them for their hard work. Then learn about the world of money together. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com podcast.
5: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up.
7: I'm of the view, as you know, that the conduct of the response in, Gaza, in the Gaza Strip has been um, over the top. I've been pushing really hard, really hard to get humanitarian assistance into Gaza. There are a lot of innocent people who are starving, a lot of innocent people who are in trouble and dying. And it's got to stop.
1: As President Biden made his sharpest criticism to date on the horrors in Gaza, the U.S. State Department said it would not support an Israeli military operation in Rafah without serious planning around the displaced civilians crammed into the southern Gaza city. For Palestinians in Rafah, time is running out and Israeli airstrikes have pounded Rafah in recent days. As that's happened, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has ordered the Israeli military to come up with a plan for civilians to evacuate before an expected ground assault. But the 1.4 million people there, including 600,000 children, are seeking shelter and facing a dire humanitarian situation. There is simply nowhere else for them to go. The Norwegian Refugee Council sent a stark warning saying Rafah could soon turn into a zone of bloodshed and destruction, that people won't be able to escape. Joining me now is Congressman Ro Khanna of California, who serves on the House Armed Services Committee. And Congressman, I know that you have been early out there calling for a ceasefire. Were you surprised by President Biden's tone last night? Because it did seem to me to be markedly different in that he did center the suffering of Palestinian women and children in a way that I had not heard him do before.
3: Joy, I was pleased by what the president has said. In private, he has expressed to some of us his concern about what Netanyahu is doing, and I'm glad that he made that statement publicly. The reality is what Netanyahu is planning in Rafah is unconscionable. You have 1.4 million people who are living in that city They've been told to go there. It's one of the only places they could escape the bombing. They're facing possible starvation, facing a lack of drinking water. The United States is saying, do not attack Rafa." Our country is saying that, the international community is saying that, and Netanyahu, in blatant defiance of the United States of America, of our president, our military, is considering going in, launching strikes, which would be a humanitarian catastrophe.
1: Then what does that say about our leverage? You know, I mean, you had South Africa take Israel to the uh, international court, you know, to the U.N. court, and that did not slow them down at all. In fact, what's all that's happened since then is that the U.S. and Europe have defunded UNRWA, which is for a lot of Palestinians, the only way that they get aid. You've seen blockades of aid going into uh Gaza, by uh, protesters who are saying they want to shut down all aid to go in, and that seems to be effective. What leverage do we have? And at some point, isn't the leverage the money we're sending and the bombs we're sending?
3: Well, it is. And I think you see the president uh, reaching the end of his patience to say uh, that Israel has been over the top. And ultimately, uh, the president has enormous leverage. I mean, when President Reagan told Menachem Begin to stop in Lebanon within hours, he stopped. When President uh, Biden in the past told Netanyahu, your runway is over in 2021, Netanyahu stopped. And I think uh, the more Israel continues to do things like go into Rafah, uh, the more they're going to lose the support of the administration and the vote in the House where the overwhelming majority of Democrats voted against a blank check to uh, the uh, Israeli government should be a wake up call.
1: It, 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 it one would think so. Uh, Anthony Blinken, the secretary of state, is in uh, the region. He met with Netanyahu. Do you think that behind closed doors that threat is being made, that if the defiance of essentially the person paying the bills here uh, for this war, if it continues that that that, the, you know, the sending of weapons, including bypassing Congress to send weapons, will stop?
3: Yes, I don't, I don't think it's a, a threat. I think it's just a statement, a fact. Look, the administration went, uh, out of their way, they spent enormous political capital to support uh, Israel with a understandable, after October 7th, uh, there was a right to get the Hamas perpetrators. There needs to be a release of all the hostages. And the president went out of his way to do that. But their expectation was that Netanyahu would then uh, minimize civilian casualties, would listen to the United States government. And here's the reality. Netanyahu has defied this president. Uh, how dare... Uh, Ben Gavir, Israel's foreign minister, have the audacity to criticize Joe Biden, have the audacity to criticize the American people. And I think that's rubbing a lot of people the wrong way, because in this country, you have respect for the American people. You have respect for the American president. And Netanyahu is showing no respect, no respect for the American president.
1: Uh, in Congress, you had some Democrats join in, uh, condemning formally, um, uh, pri- Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, uh, for her comments about, you know, her own people, the people, her relatives, you know, in, uh, in, in, in Gaza, uh, and in, I'm sorry, in, in, in the Palestinian territories. Is there a shift inside of the caucus to say, wait a minute, maybe, you know, yourself and others who've been for a ceasefire might have been on the right side?
3: There is a joy, and now there are almost 63 members of Congress who have called for a permanent ceasefire and a release of all the hostages, including people like Jamie Raskin, and that number is growing. There is an increasing concern about the humanitarian situation in Gaza. I mean, 400,000 people, according to the United Nations, face starvation. Children are going without food and water. Uh, and I do think that this is uh, something that many members of Congress are now uh, deeply concerned about on the Democratic side.
1: Uh, we will watch what continues to happen. Congressman Ro Khanna, thank you so much for your time. Much appreciated. Joy, thank you. Thank you. And still ahead, yesterday's historic oral arguments before the Supreme Court provide insights into conservatives' appallingly flexible stance on states' rights. We're back after this. Now, I don't know about you, but this little thing popped into my head yesterday when I was listening to the oral arguments before the Supreme Court. That little thing was uh, irony because conservative justices went to town questioning a state's ability to decide who's on their ballot. They were all hot and bothered because Colorado was saying that they had the right to decide their own election rules. Fancy that. Which is weird, right? Given how the majority of those conservative justices are always telling us that states can gerrymander maps or make voting hard because of states' rights. It's even weirder when you realize that in March, those same justices will hear arguments about how it's totally cool for one judge in Texas who is an anti-abortion zealot to decide for every single woman in America that they can't get Mifepristone, the abortion drug that has been widely used in the United States since it was first approved 24 years ago. Here's the real kicker. Just two years ago, those same conservative justices told us that every single woman in America has no constitutional right to bodily autonomy and that states have the right to decide what's best for them. The icing on the cake about yesterday's arguments was that the guy defending Trump was the same guy who helped deprive 14 million Texas women of access to reproductive health care. Yep. Jonathan Mitchell, is the man who wrote the sadistic abortion bounty hunter law. And oh, he's not done. Mitchell has been pushing for the enforcement of the Comstock Act, a nearly two centuries old anti-obscenity law, which would effectively ban abortion nationwide. And guess who's the key to making sure that that happens? Donald Trump. Maybe that's why and it helps explain why Mitchell wants to make sure that the guy who helped overturn Roe remains on the ballot.
9: Joining me now is Ellie Mastonk justice
1: correspondent for the nation.
9: Do you find that stuff ironic too, Ellie? It's almost like the state's rights argument was invented by white supremacist patriarchs to allow the states to keep black people and women under control. And that's the only thing the argument is good for, because when we try to use it for anything else, apparently it doesn't matter. It's almost like that's what we're seeing, isn't it, Joy? Look- Yeah, it's it's almost. the, The irony is rife here. When we talk about elections, you're absolutely right to bring up abortion and Mitchell and his kind of torturous role through all this. He's the through line um, um, through all of this uh, uh, hypocrisy. But when we talk about elections specifically, let us not forget that it is the conservative justices who consistently tell us that the states have the right to restrict voting access, restrict uh, early voting access, um, keep felons off the ballot, that every state has the right to keep people from accessing the ballot. But now, yesterday, they turned around and said that the states don't have the right to decide who's on their own ballot. John Roberts literally act like it couldn't possibly be his job to know, because if he might have to make one ruling for Colorado and a whole different ruling for Texas, how could he live (laughs) at such speed when he's literally the same guy who says that Texas gets to gerrymander however it wants and Colorado gets the gerrymander however it wants, and New Jersey gets the gerrymander however it it wants. So the hypocrisy was deep and, yes, ironic but also troubling and also, again, just shows the intellectual paucity of the entire conservative argument here.
1: And, and the thing is, let's not also forget that John Roberts, Amy Coney Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh were on the team that decided that Florida I guess, to decide who the president was in 2000. Let's just not forget that either. But, you know, let, let's go because the other thing they were trying to argue is that the states can't decide who can be on their ballot. There has to be some sort of congressional action that makes implementing legislation. OK, that's the 14th Amendment, what about the 15th Amendment. 15th Amendment says you can't be denied the right to vote based on race or uh, condition of, of former servitude. Isn't the Voting Rights Act the implementing legislation? Because they keep chipping away at that, too.
9: One would think there were there were so many different ways that this argument could have gone. And instead, it went like the dumbest possible way. You know, one aspect that they kept that I that people kept bringing up was that there are a lot of constitutional bars to keep people off the ballot. Right. You can't be thirty five. You have to be at least thirty (laughs) five. Right. You have to be a natural born citizen. Neil Gorsuch has a case where he kicks a man off the ballot because he is a natural lie citizen. And Neil Gorsuch says, no, no, no. The Constitution says you have to be (laughs) naturally born. What's the difference? Well, clear as I can tell, the man who wants to run for president in Colorado that Neil Gorsuch kicked off was Arab, whereas the man that Mm. Neil Gorsuch wants to keep on the court is orange. Like, that's that's the difference (laughs) as far as I can see it, right? And look, the- Go ahead. Uh, the the liberals did this too. The liberals did the states the, said the states don't have this power. And while I disagree with Kagan or Jackson's kind of seemingly opinion, there at least give them credit for intellectual consistency, right? Because <laughs> yeah, because Elena Kagan doesn't think that Colorado can kick Trump off the ballot because she doesn't think that uh, Texas can keep the ballot away from Black people and poor people, right? Kataji Brown Jackson doesn't think Colorado can get can, can be can Trump can be kicked off the ballot in Colorado because she doesn't. Believe felons can be prohibited from accessing the ballot in Florida, right? So there is intellectual I disagree with the outcome in this case, but there is intellectual consistency from the liberals. What's Gorsuch's excuse? What's Kavanaugh's excuse? What's Clarence Thomas's excuse for, first of all, just being just befouling this case with his (laughs) presence in the first place? And then, certainly, what is his excuse? Um, for going against his alleged states' rights, you know um uh, um people, yeah, because that's that's his real people and and yeah. instead of uh, uh uh applying uh the the Fourteenth Amendment as written to Donald Trump
1: i uh I would love to see what would happen if uh Ginny Thomas ran for president. Could she be kept off the ballot? because she's for sure an insurrectionist, but I guess we'll never know. Uh, Ellie Mastala sticking around to play who won the week and that is next. Well, friends, we made it to the end of another week, which means it is time to play our favorite game. Who won the week? Back with me is the great Ellie Mistal. Ellie Mistal, our solo player today. Who won the week?
9: Representative Al Green, I believe, Joy, that the real Moses, the one who ain't got time for false prophets and fake Christians uh, like Mike Johnson who scheduled votes while people in surgery, I believe the real moments rose Al Green up out of his hospital bed so he could be shepherded to the chamber to defeat the Republican <laughs> attempt to impeach Secretary Mayorkas. Al Green in a hospital bed with no shoes on, won the uh, week.
1: And, you, and every time you say his name, you just think, ah, <laughs> I'm so he was amazing.
9: in love. Oh, my God. Look, and, look. You know, and the Republicans, he was amazing. And the Republicans can't do math. So it was like, it was a perfect sure uh, 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 circle right there.
1: I loved it. And his interview, he said, I, he said, I, I was born for this moment. He said, I'm getting up at this bed. <laughs> I'm a combo. Yes, that is an excellent answer. Well, my answer is somebody that had a bit, had their, their peak moment, people thought was in the 80s but no, 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 no. It turned out the peak moment for Miss Tracy Chapman is this year. Tracy Chapman at the Grammys, moisturized and chilling. She had all the shea butter on her face and her hit song Fast Car is a hit again, number one again on Billboard. She has come back in a whole nother era. Her song was remade by a country artist and became number one. So Tracy Chapman, we are excited for your rebirth as an icon of the music business. And Tracy Chapman won the week. All right. Before we go, Ellie, we got to talk a little Super Bowl. Super Bowl's coming up this week. Do you have a favorite? And is it Usher? A favorite
9: uh, <laughs> between those two, like, detestable teams? No. I don't have a favorite. I'm in one of those, like, I'm rooting for the meteor to come through and just, like, wipe it out and maybe get a good Doritos commercial. Like, that's what I'm rooting for. <laughs> I'm going to watch, but, like, not— those are two unlikable teams from where I sit.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, Patrick Mahomes, you know, he's he's obviously great. And, you know, and they're, neither of them are, are the teams that I'm rooting for. Either. I'm not really that interested in the game. But what do you make of all of the drama around it? We were just showing, uh, the, you know, Kels, Kelsey uh, on the, this whole Taylor Swift and her man thing has become like a it's become a thing. right? I almost said who won the week was the NFL because they're going to have so many more listeners between the Swifties and. And the fans of Usher, they might have won the week.
9: They—they've made me. They've turned me into a Swifty because all that happens right now <laughs> is that every time Taylor Swift gets on the screen, I get to yeah, hear get the whining from weak men <laughs> who like couldn't couldn't just and, these and involuntarily, man. you know, whatever men who could never they be you. around Taylor Swift, <laughs> and it's just—it's go. brilliant. I drink it in my coffee. It we, that is that is we awesome. love it. That is the best. I part appreciate of the you,
1: boy. Ellie Mastal. That is tonight's treat. Week-